So quick personal confession. Usually my wife, if I am teaching, she will say, hey, do you want to do a dry run? It's more of not a suggestion. It's more of let's do this. <laughs> so la last night, you know, we start. It was late by the time everyone got home, 8 o'clock, and we run through it. And, man, it was rough. Mm. And, um, you know, she, she can be tough. And then she said, you're talking about risk, and you're taking a huge risk because I don't know what, what you're talking about. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Uh, my, my, my daughter wandered away in two minutes, my son in five minutes. So um, lesson learned, do a practice run a week in advance, not 10 hours in advance. That's not taking a risk. That might be actually dumb. And I didn't get much sleep. I woke up early, but I did put the outline here. So hopefully, if you can't follow me, you can follow the outline and see where I'm going with this. Uh, but thank you, guys. So I, I want to turn to Numbers chapter 13. And Mario is going to be reading... <clears throat> for us uh, the first three verses, and then we'll pick it up in 25. Okay. Uh, the, the title of this first uh, couple is Spy Set into Canaan. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. <coughs> From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord. All of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. Okay, let's stop there. And the next two sections deals with all the people, men who went out and their tribes. We'll skip that. And what Moses asks them to do is verses 17 to 24. He tells them where they are to go and what they are to do. And let's pick it up in verse 25. Okay. Report of the spies. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and their cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once, occupy it, for we are all well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So... They brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the son of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves to be like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. 
Thanks, Mario. And then chapter 14, I'll read the first four verses here. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we uh, talk about the subject of faith and the risk that so many in your word have shown us that we would build us up in our faith, transform and renew our minds, I pray this, this morning. And I pray that you help me to speak your word clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the spring of 1590, uh, Hernando Cortez landed with his company on the shores of eastern Mexico. He had 6,000 men. He had about a small number of horses and 16 ships. And they set foot in Mexico only to discover rough terrain, hostile locals. And against this tough backdrop, some of his men decided it would be far easier for them to give up and just go back home. And they began to talk about leaving Mexico. Cortes was faced with a revolt. And he did an unexpected thing. He told his men to run all of the ships, 15 of the 16 ships aground, and take them apart. As ordered, the crew ran all but one ship aground and physically stripped the vessels of their rigging, their sails, the timber, the tackle, and they used the materials to build houses for the troops. Now, with no way to escape, their leader looked at his men and informed them, you will try or you will die. There is no way back. Cortes explained in his own writing later that we are all in. There is no turning back. And after dismantling the ships, each man, as he reports, then had nothing to rely on apart from his own hands and the assurance that they would conquer the land and win or die in the attempt. Now, many times this illustration is used, and they talk about Cortez burning his boats, this picture here. But if you look at some of the literature, they actually dismantled the boats. And apparently, Alexander did this. Other conquerors have done this. So this is a common strategy back in those days. By destroying their boats, Cortes' men displayed faith in their cause and by committing everything by going all in. The theme this year at this men's breakfast has been faith, and I'm sure you've talked about this in the past, but faith must be exercised in actions, not just in words. And we need to ask ourselves, are we like Cortes' men, drawn back to the comfort of the old world, this false sense of safety it provides? Are we just... Or are we all in for our faith? Are we like the 10 spies that Mario read about in Numbers chapter 13, who focused on their fears, their weaknesses? Or are we more like Joshua and Caleb, who focused on God and were willing to take action in faith? I don't know about you, but as a child, you know, children are asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? It's a common question we ask our children, right? And the question I ask, now that we are grown up, I think... (laughs) The question I sometimes ask myself, and maybe you do too, is what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And everything the world tells us is to strive for more comfort, more stability, more ease, more safety, more security. That's the message that bombards us constantly. 
And I find that often these calls for safety, comfort, stability, self-preservation seem to be at odds with the call to follow Christ and to be all in. Being all in usually involves some degree of risk. And today I want to talk about the role of risk in, our, in the life of faith. And I want us to consider to what degree each of us are maybe stepping out in faith and the areas we can demonstrate faith in action. And I do want to give credit to Piper's little book. He had a little booklet called Risk is Right, which I read a few years ago and got me thinking about this. So credit, credit there for that. Risk is right. It's a tiny little booklet. You can read it in an hour. <clears throat> so I want to start by talking about the, the di dictionary definition of what is risk. Um, risk is the possibility of losing or gaining something of value as a result of an action. Values such as physical health, social status, emotional well-being, financial wealth can be either gained or lost when taking risk resulting from either an action or inaction. Now, there is actually, I discovered, a unit of measuring risk. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Um, it is called a micromort. Uh, it's the unit of risk that represents a one in million chance of sudden death. So if something exposes you to one micromort, it means you have a one in a million chance of dying. For example, skydiving increases your risk of dying by, they say, 10 micromorts micro per jump meaning you have a 1 in a 100,000 risk of dying when you jump out of a plane. Scaling Mount Everest would expose you to a whopping 40,000 micromorts, which means 1 in 25 people who go up that mountain die. Which, this is why Everest, I've seen some documentaries, is littered with dead bodies. Most people who make it up there don't come back down. A lot of people. Uh, driving a car exposes you, 250 miles exposes you to 1 micromort of risk. In comparison, riding a motorcycle exposes you to, um, uh, every 60 miles of riding a motorcycle exposes you to the same risk, which tells you how much more riding a motorcycle is. Flying, which strikes fear in a lot of people, is actually statistically way safer. Uh, every 1,000 miles on an airplane exposes you to one micromort of risk. Now, if these things make you afraid to leave your house and just sit in your chair, guess what? Just waking up in the morning, uh, hanging out the house, sitting on a chair, due to the likelihood of falling off it, increases your risk of death by 1.3 micromorts. Having a bath increases your risk by 0.3 micromorts, and so on. And we know this. Medications come with side effects, risks of side effects. Um, your retirement account comes with warnings of risks related to investing in the market. Mario probably hears this all the time. The point of all this is that risk whether we acknowledge it or not, is built into the fabric of our lives. Being 100% safe and in control is a myth. We are not. So the question for us as believers here is, if you are risking anyways by getting on an airplane, by going to work, by traveling, by getting here this morning, just mundane things around the house, why not risk anyways for something of eternal value? Why not risk for something of ultimate value? That is the question I wanted to ask this morning. To understand, you know, what is, uh, to understand wh what's ultimate value in our life, we need to look at the ultimate risk taker in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is an example of an ultimate risk taker. He endured some of the most severe persecutions and hardships 
And Paul's whole life was one extraordinary risk after another. If you turn to the Acts chapter 20, <coughs> verse 23, Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 23, he says this, The Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. We'll stop there. He never knew exactly how these would come, when they would come, by who they would come. He knows there is a possibility and it's out there. And he had two choices, run away or go right into it. And he almost always goes right into it. And we know this because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. And in verse 24 he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less than one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we see Paul had two choices. He could run away or he could risk it. And in going back to Acts chapter 20 in verse 24, he gives us the reason why he almost always runs into these situations, not away from them. And he says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And Paul goes on and he sums up his entire life purpose by his famous declaration in, the, in Philippians in chapter 1 in verse 20. And we all know this. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life's purpose was to honor Christ, magnify Christ, make much the name of Christ. And his value was not in his life itself, but in Christ. And in Romans chapter 1, we see the reason why he's ready to die. He says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the, all the nations, for the sake of his name. So Paul and the early church lived for and died for making the name of Christ known among the nations. And the mission has not changed 2,000 years down the road for us today. So we have in Christ something of ultimate value and something worth risking for. So what is risk in the context of our faith? We talked about the dictionary definition of, of, of risk, and then I was looking, thinking about, and I had a hard time with this, but I came up with taking action in faith, knowing we may lose what we value in this life for something of eternal value, of eternal value. Taking action in faith without being guaranteed a positive outcome in this life. If you know what the outcome is going to be, that's not really taking a risk. You already know. Risk is when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So I want to look at um, risk in the Bible. Now, if you look at the New Testament in the ESV, 
there are actually only three references to the word risk. Um, in Acts chapter 15, um, referencing Barnabas and Paul, it says, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16, there's a reference to Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of Gentiles give thanks as well. The consequence in those days was beheading. They literally risked their necks. And in Philippians chapter 2, we hear about Epaphroditus, the person who uh, carries a care package for Paul who is under house arrest and who carries the, the letter back to the Philippian church, the book of Philippians, who nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in our service to him. So those are the three references to the word risk in the New Testament. Now, while this word is sort of used in a limited manner throughout the scripture, um, the theme of courage, the theme of acting in faith is found throughout the Bible. And I wanted to give you a couple of quick examples. Um, if you go back to the book of Esther, we know how that goes. Haman devises a strategy to put all the Jews to death. Mordecai tells Esther, you know what, you must go to the king and tell him you are a Jewess and, you know, save your people. The risk was if you walked into the king's throne palace without being summoned, you were going to be killed. You were risking your life. Here is what Esther says in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So she says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, on my behalf and neither eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And then she says this, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, there is an if there. She doesn't know what the outcome is going to be, but she is not guaranteed a positive outcome, but she risks her life to do the right, right thing. And then in the book of Daniel, we know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow down to the statue. They're brought before the king, and the king says, don't you know I can throw you into the furnace and burn you to cinder? And how do they respond? They say, oh, oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God who we serve will be able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then they say this, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And again, the words, but if not. If not, if God will not save us, we still will not bow down and disobey God. And last week, um, last month, Dave Boland talked about Rahab in his message. Rahab places her life on the line and risks her life because she would be executed as a traitor if she was discovered helping these men. But she goes ahead and does it anyway. And the point here is, even though the word risk is, is not necessarily used throughout the Bible, the lives of men and women of faith throughout the Bible display this theme, faith in action, many times without being guaranteed a positive outcome. So taking action and faith in obedience without being assured a positive outcome is definitely biblical. Um, I wanted to talk about five truths about, about risk really quickly. Number one, we talked about this. Risk is part of our lives. Uh, we already talked about this. Comfort and security is not 100% guaranteed every day, 
We are not in control as much as we think. We are fragile creatures. And James 4.14 says, What is your life? For you are a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes. Our lives are like a vapor. We are fragile. Our lives are, are you know, risk is a f- part of our fabric of our lives. So that's number one. Number two, even though we are at risk, God does not risk anything by definition. He is sovereign over all things. And being omniscient, every outcome in the universe and in our lives is known to him. Nothing surprises God. There is no risk with God. In fact, 1 John 3.20 says, For what, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He knows everything. God does not ever roll the proverbial dice, so to speak. He's completely sovereign over the outcome of all things. Number three, all of us who are children of God who have been saved, we may have physical risk, but the one risk that has been 100% taken care of or mitigated for us is our eternal risk. We are no longer under God's wrath anymore. We do not deal with risk when it comes to eternity. And like I said, our physical lives may, may have risk, but our eternal destiny is secure in Christ. And John 10.28 speaks to this. It says, I, gave, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We are eternally secure. That's number three. Number four, risky living or risky behavior is not the same as stepping out in faith. Those are two different things, right? Risky behavior, depending on what you're doing, uh, maybe foolishness, maybe even sinful, it lacks wisdom. Um, I keep telling my kids, especially when we drop them at school in the morning, make wise choices today. I mean, it comes down to that, right? And your day will be fine. Um, Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 17 talks about this. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And you can take foolish risks. Um, buying a lottery ticket and with your hard-earned money every week is f- probably foolishness. You're not going to win, statistically speaking, right? Um, so there is risk in faith for the right reasons. There is also risky behavior and risky living, which is not what we're talking about today. And the fifth point there, God brings situations in our life that involve stepping out in faith where the outcome is not guaranteed to grow us in our faith. And we get to make a decision. Do I want to make a safe choice here? Do I want to step out in faith and take risks for God? And James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And it's, the word is when. It's not if you will meet. We are guaranteed tr- trials and tribulations. And the question is, do we use those to grow in our faith, or do we sort of shirk those and run away? <clears throat> Um, Next, I want to talk about what can we risk for our faith, right? If you're thinking about what is exactly that can be risked. And like I defined it, anything of value in life can be risked. So I listed a few things of value that we can risk for our faith. And I have a little handout here if you want to hand this out.
So I listed a few things that we can risk for our faith. And I may have missed something, so I left a little blank at the end if you want to add more to it. Um, so this is sort of like a personal risk ass assessment scorecard, and you can do this for yourself. Um, each of these have 0% to 100% when you're all in, right? And you can do it as we go. You can do it later. A few points about this. One, there is no right or wrong answer. And it, it's, it's, it's whatever it is. And if you want a benchmark or a baseline, maybe someone like Paul is a good person to compare with. He would probably be like 100% almost or all in on most of these, right? And the purpose really is for me and you to take stock of what our faith is costing us now and evaluate areas we may want to sort of raise the stakes, if, so to speak, if you will. Um, so some of the areas I listed are life, relationships, time, treasure, talent, reputation, and there may be more. Um, let's start with the first one, life. Uh, risk in the Bible almost always involves physical risk. We read some of the examples of people who would have died for what they believe and who did die for what they believe. Esther, Daniel, Moses, Paul, uh, the, the people in the New Testament that I referenced, those guys, all death dealt with death. They risked their life themselves. Even in modern day times, um, we enjoy you know, freedoms in America, but Christians in many parts of the world, they deal with physical dangers. They risk their lives to go to church on Sunday, to meet in underground churches, to distribute Bibles, um, to worship together. It is, it is not the same around the world. People even today risk their physical lives for the gospel. And if you look at missionaries a couple of hundred years ago, um, many of them would buy one-way tickets to wherever they went. And many of them would pack their belongings in a coffin. They knew they weren't coming back. They would pack their belongings in a coffin, buy a one-way ticket. They knew they were on their way to dying. So, so yes, risk, risk almost always in the Bible involved life. Uh, for us, maybe less so. And I think we can safely say most of us living in America, I enjoy, you know, maybe mine is 0% of living in America. There is no physical risk for the most part for most of us living in America. And, you know, you can go ahead and rate for yourself your level of physical risk for the gospel. So that's number one. Number two, you can risk relationships. You can risk relationships for the gospel and for your faith. Um, in some parts of the world, and I've seen this growing up in, uh, in India, when you become a believer, if you come from a Hindu background, or if you come from a Muslim background, you have to make a choice between Christ and your family. Uh, many times your families make you choose. They, if you convert, they cut you off, you're disowned, you're said, we have nothing to do with you, leave the home. I've, I've seen that personally. And Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, talks about this. It says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. For some, the cost is relationships, even close relationships. So think about it. Does how you live put your faith, how you live your faith put any of your relationships at risk? Or do you compromise your faith to somehow balance the relationship and the faith? Because sometimes we can do that. So that was number two, relationships. Uh, the next three, I'm going to sort of combine them in the interest of time. Uh, time, treasure, talent. All of us have the same amount of time, the most valuable commodity in the world, because we all have the same amount each day. And in Matthew chapter 25, 
we know the parable of the man who goes on a journey. He calls his servants and he gives each one of them his property. To one he gives five talents, to another he gives two talents, and it says each according to his ability, and to one he gave one. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But then the one who received the one went out. What does he do? He digs a hole in the ground and hides his master's money. And the master gives each of these guys an opportunity. Some had more, some had less. But what does the master expect? He expects a return on investment when he comes back. Two of them take a chance and multiply what was given to them. The third goes and hides his opportunity in fear, not wanting to lose what he already had. And I was thinking about how does this translate to our lives today? Uh, we may not see time, treasure, talent as areas we risk necessarily, but sometimes we don't see the immediate return. We aren't always guaranteed an immediate return when we invest our time, our talent, our treasure in God's kingdom. Um, sometimes we invest in ministry and we don't see any fruit. Other times we see the fruit. We do it anyway. Steve talks about it all the time. You know, it's important to be faithful. The fruitfulness is in God's hands. And we invest anyways without being guaranteed a return. I was thinking about Dr. Rab, who was here a couple of weeks ago. He talked about uh, Kike, the student that our church is going to be sp sponsoring now. And Dr. Rob said, you know, sometimes these students don't last the four years. They drop out. And I was thinking to myself, what happens if he drops out? You know, he could drop out. We are spending all these resources on him. Um, does that mean we don't do it? And we do it anyways because even if he does drop out, I was thinking, Maida will continue to get our support. They will invest in another student. But, if we, but we are trusting God that he will finish. And if, if we, he does finish, we get to impact a church and a community in Colombia, his home country, if he does it something we could never do on our own. And I realize it is worth the cost. It is worth the risk of investing in this young man because of what God can choose to do through him. And then the last one I had here is reputation. This one is a big one for me. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul, Paul says this, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel and he's, he's in, in prison. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They are doing it to spite Paul. He's being slandered. He's being put down. But Paul does not care for his reputation. He says, you know what? I don't care if, if I'm slandered as long as Christ is proclaimed. So he's focused on Christ. And sometimes, you know, our reputation is important uh, for us. Sometimes we don't want to risk our reputation and good social standing and standing for our faith in a, in a workplace environment. I'll admit sometimes it's really hard, especially where we live. Um, sometimes with family members, it, it's hard to take a stand and put your reputation out there with a neighbor. And I wanted you guys to think about this. To what degree do we risk our reputation? So these were all areas we can risk our faith, life, relationship, time, treasure, talent, reputation, there may be more. And I want you to think about this later and do this assessment and think about areas that maybe 
you want to stretch your faith. Maybe you want to risk, risk your faith in some of these areas. So just think about it. <coughs> so how do we cultivate a mindset towards faith and action? We want to get practical. We just don't want to leave with a lot of head knowledge today. And how can we make or take more risks for the gospel? And I came up with a mindset which has four aspects. You need to be ready. You need to be invested. You need to maybe possibly sacrifice. And you need to be kingdom-minded. Let's start with the first one. You need to be ready. I was thinking about this. Taking a risk requires readiness, right? Any risky adventure, endeavor requires planning, preparation, and a state of high readiness. A few weeks ago, I took my kids to the city. We watched the Blue Angels. It was a great show. Those guys spend hundreds and hundreds of hours of preparation before they do their 40-minute show. It's an extremely risky endeavor. Apparently, it's a 10% um, mortality rate among Blue Angel pilots. Very risky. But what they do is prepare, ready themselves, ready themselves, so when the time comes, they're able to do it safely. 1 Peter 3.15 talks about this. It says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season, be ready in season, and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You have to be ready. You have to be ready in heart. You have to be ready in mind. Well in advance, so when the opportunity presents itself, you are there to take a step of faith. You can't make a decision when that opportunity comes. You do, but you have to be well prepared to make those decisions in your head and heart well before those opportunities present themselves. So you have to be ready. <clears throat> Number two, the I, you need to be invested. You need to be invested. Investment is not gambling, and gambling is not investment. Mario will tell you this. Right, Mario? Yes. Investment <laughs> requires understanding the pros. Investment un involves understanding the pros and cons of putting down resources towards an asset that is intended to increase in value over time. That is your intention. And in the parable of the talents that I talked about earlier in Matthew 10, 25, he who received the five talents, what does he do? He goes at once and traded with them. He invested them. He didn't bury them. And he made five talents more. He who had two talents made two talents more. Both guys invested wisely with the end goal of increasing the value of what they had for the master when he returned. So investing in eternity for the glory of God is the most important thing in all of the universe. You need to be invested in order to risk. Number three, the S, sacrifice. You may need to sacrifice. You may need to sacrifice. In order for us to invest and go all in on something of value in one area, may require us to direct things of value from other areas. So this may require us to sacrifice some of the things I talked about earlier. Sacrificing time, sacrificing relationships, sacrificing finances, sacrificing our own reputation for the sake of something eternal, of something of eternal value, you may be called to sacrifice. And the last one here is the K, the kingdom-mindedness. You need to be kingdom-minded and have eternal perspectives. So we ready ourselves, we invest, 
we may need to sacrifice. All because the number one truth is God's kingdom is first and should be first in our life. His glory is the ultimate goal of our lives. And we get to decide, are we building our own kingdom of comfort and security, or are we part of building God's kingdom? So you have to be ready, invest, maybe sacrifice, and be kingdom-minded. And as we wrap it up, and as I conclude here, um, I wanted to talk about what stops us from taking a step in faith? What stops us from taking a step in faith? It's easy to talk about risk, but we don't always do it. And often the one thing that holds us back, and we see this all throughout God's word, is fear. Fear can make us avoid the risk, count the cost, and say, you know what, I'm not going to take that chance. And it's interesting, the Bible says way more about fear than it does about courage and risk because we are naturally fearful creatures. Fear not, apparently, fear not, is apparently the most repeated command in the whole Bible, fear not. And there are over 500 references to fear in the Bible, way more than there is references to risk. And I want to end by showing you that not taking a risk, not taking action has consequences as well. Not taking risk has consequences as well. So if you turn back to Numbers 14, and we'll pick up from where we left off. <clears throat> Going back to Numbers 14, so they've gone out. The, the 12 spies have spied for how many days? 40 days. They've returned. And between the 12 of them, they have two different reports. They all concur the land is fruitful, the people are strong, but 10 men focus on what? They focus on the dangers, they exaggerate the risks, and ex express a faithless attitude towards God and his promises. And what happens as a result? All of Israel, the entire people of Israel, grumble, they wail, they cry at night, and you know what they say at the end of what I just read? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Only two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua. And in Numbers four, uh, chapter Chapter, 14, chapter 14, verse 6, we read, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephune, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes, said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And note the next word, if, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against God. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And what happens then? Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They, they, didn't, they didn't buy it. They just were overcome with fear. So Joshua and Caleb, they are the only ones to say, guys, let's go forward. Let's do this. God is faithful. He will take us through it. Let's take action and faith. But they are completely outnumbered by those who feared and lacked faith. And here, here is what is interesting here, and I found this, this whole section very fascinating. There is a consequence for not taking action at times, for, of not risking in faith. And in the next section, if you read, you will see God's judgment 
God wants to wipe them out. Moses intercedes on their behalf. God relents. And then God says to Moses, everyone who is over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness and will not enter the promised land. And I never knew this. Why did they spend 40 years in the wilderness? The next passage tells us. He says, for every day the spies went and spied, you guys are going to wander the wilderness for one year. You spied for 40 days, you lacked faith, 40 years. You guys are going to go in this big circle, right? And those 10 men who had a faithless report, what happens to them? They die by a plague. They're gone. The only two to survive and enter the promised land with all the children, everyone under 20, were Joshua and Caleb. And think of the descendants of these 10 men who lacked faith. What do you think they felt? They felt regret, possibly, as they wandered in the harsh desert for the next 40 years. Here's what they may have been thinking. If only our tribe members had, our tribe leaders had faith. If only we had listened to Joshua and Caleb. If only we had courage and faith in God, we would already be in the promised land. We wouldn't be out here. If only, if only... And all they were left with was regret and the knowledge that they were destined to die in the wilderness. It's a horrible way to live and die. And I think the lesson here is that sometimes not taking a step in faith, not taking a risk for our faith, can also end in regret. And I wanted to leave you with a statement here. The cost of not stepping out in faith may be spending the rest of your life wishing you had. The cost of not stepping out in faith may be, may result in you spending the rest of your life wishing you had. So you get to choose, we get to choose, I get to choose how we live today and for the rest of our lives. A life of risks for God versus a life lived in regret that we didn't take action in our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us and into our very lives. I just thank you that you have provided us with guidance for life. Lord, you want to grow us in our faith as we read, and we pray that even today we would consider the words, we would look at the lives of Joshua and Caleb and Be willing to put our faith in action, not just in words, but to consider the ways that you have blessed us with life, with possessions, with time, with talent, with relationships. And consider ways in which we can invest in your work here and throughout the world. Consider ways in which we can invest and put our lives in your hands for something of eternal value which is knowing Christ and for making the name of Christ known be known throughout the world i just thank you again for this time i pray you will build us up in our faith through through your word this morning and i thank you for each and every one who has come out today be with us for the rest of the day and we pray that you will bring us back safely tomorrow and we look forward to a good time of worship in jesus name i pray amen